Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, here's your host, Jason Day. Hello, friends, and welcome to another insightful episode of the Church Leaders Podcast. I am your host, Jason Day, and I had the privilege of chatting with Sam Rodriguez this week. Sam is senior pastor of New Season Church in Sacramento, California, and he also serves as president of the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference. God has used Sam in a variety of ways, including through media and through the government. In fact, Sam was the first Hispanic evangelical pastor to pray at a U.S. presidential inauguration. Sam has written several books, including his latest entitled Shake Free, How to Deal with the Storms, Shipwrecks, and Snakes in Your Life. Now, in today's episode, Sam and I discuss the number one challenge that pastors are facing today. Sam also shares some helpful insights on how to lead as you embrace the multi-ethnic and multicultural landscape around your church. Then we discuss what we can learn from the Apostle Paul when it comes to facing storms in our life and in our ministries. So there's some very practical and encouraging bits of advice here. I invite you to join me in my conversation with Sam Rodriguez. Sammy, it is such a pleasure to have you with us on the Church Leaders Podcast. Welcome, brother. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Now, Sammy, you've been involved in ministry in so many different arenas, Um, obviously uh, serving as senior pastor there at New Season Church in Sacramento, um, but also, you know, leading international ministry initiatives, ministering through media. You know, you've been involved in the government arena. Uh, needless to say, your ministry experiences have have probably opened your eyes to, to so much. And since we have your wisdom and your experiences with us today, brother, I, I wanted to begin our conversation with really a, a kind of an open-ended question, if we could just kind of pick your brain just a little bit. Sammy, what do you see in, in your own ministry, but also as you travel the country, as you speak with different pastors, what is it that you see— as really the biggest challenge that pastors are facing today? Identity. Mm. Above all, it's an issue of identity. Mm. Nothing else surpasses what I would deem as identity moratorium. The lack of clarity as it pertains to who we are as pastors, and who we collectively at a macro level as the ecclesia, as the church. It's identity. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 5, Jesus addresses the crowd and the disciples, his, this emerging constituency. And he looks at them and says, you are the light of the world. It begins by identifying them, giving them clarity of who they are. When the angel of the Lord confronts Gideon in Judges chapter 6, you are a mighty warrior. Heaven always begins by telling us who we are. And the angst right now is not even moral relativism or cultural decadence, spiritual apathy or ecclesiastical lukewarmness. The issue is not the world. The world will always be the world. The issue is not darkness. There will always be darkness. Well, not always, but for now there's darkness. And it's not about the devil being the devil. Why should we be surprised that he's the devil? The issue is lack of identity. We are right now defined by culture and society. We are defined externally by circumstances, by legislative initiatives, by the number of followers on social media. We are defined by so many things other than the reality of the centrality of Christ, the Spirit of God in us, and the purpose of God upon us. So you ask, what's the number one issue? It's the lack of viable, tangible, measurable, Christ-centered, Bible-based, Spirit-empowered identity. 
Well, that that's good. Now, now let me ask you, Sammy, how um, or why have we as pastors, as ministry leaders, really lost our identity? We, we you know, to a great degree, it's drinking the proverbial Kool-Aid. We do live in, in darkened times, and Dorothy, we're not in Kansas anymore. We do live in a very uber-morally relativistic time, unbridled in, in history, unbridled in human history, for that matter. And it's complacency. Today's complacency is tomorrow's captivity. We are what we tolerate. And we have been complacent and we have tolerated so much for so long as the church. We are the countercultural narrative. We are a countercultural alternative narrative that seeks to engage the culture in order to reform the culture in the name of Jesus. But the moment we permit culture to define us, the moment we permit culture to dictate what we can and cannot do, the moment we permit culture to marginalize the voice of Christendom, which is truth and love, grace and eternal salvation only through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then we find ourselves suffering from identity moratorium. So it's complacency and it's apathy and it's surrendering truth on the altar of political, cultural, or sexual expediency. That's good. Now, now let, let's dig in a little bit deeper, Sammy. Can you give us some, some specific examples of how we've let culture define us? Again, the redemptive hope is in the church, is Christ through his church. So it's not, it's not all doom and gloom. Uh, but in the past 20, 30, 40 years, we have, we have, has been, and we don't just be the conduit of doing our due diligence. When we look at polling, be it from Pew or from Barna, be it from LifeWay, different studies that have taken place, we know that there is an, an increase of those that are no longer connected to a Bible-believing church. We know that there's a generational great concern about the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S, a generation emerging in the millennial and in the Z generation who have zero affinity towards our Christian worldview whatsoever. And that has taken place because, to a great degree, we have permitted, again, complacency and apathy, and we have sacrificed truth. Let me explain that. Not, this is not a collective sort of disparaging marker upon the church. The church is still the hope of the world, Christ through his church. We look at ourselves, statistically speaking, we measure the fact that on many occasions on Sunday, Christ, the centrality of Christ is no longer preached. We preach on 12 habits for better life, 10 habits uh, for success in the, in the marketplace, seven steps for increasing your financial investment portfolio, whatever it may be. And these are not bad things. But man, if we water down the gospel, if we take away Christ from the gospel message, then what are we preaching? It's a motivational sermon indeed, but it's not necessarily the gospel of Jesus. And, and we see that the outcome now is a generation that is emerging, that is not connected to biblical truth. So they, they drink the Kool-Aid that two plus two is five, when we know there are moral absolutes and there are certainties that come throughout eternity that cannot and will not be denied. That's good. Now, in your church and then in, you know, the pastors that you, that you work with, you have the opportunity to see lots of, lots of really amazing things happening in the church in light of, of all that we're facing as a society and as a culture. You get to see those glimmers of, of really cool hope and exciting resurrection life happening through these churches. Can you share some of those stories of, about how churches are kind of um, embracing the hope of Christ and declaring the hope of Christ? There is a flip, and this is, I'm, again, I'm not a doomsday preacher, but I'll tell you this, in light of the, the attack on religious liberty or Judeo-Christian value system in the past, let's say, 10 years, just to frame it a bit, 
we are seeing an emergence of Christ-centered, Bible-based churches transforming their communities. We are, we are at the precipice of an awakening. I believe that God is not done with America, and America is not done with God. And, and of course, the conduit is the church. And I am seeing across uh, cities across America uh, great moves of God. Here's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing the emergence of multi-ethnic, Christ-centered, Bible-based churches. To me, that's the hope of a nation. The fact that it's multi-ethnic, that churches are going beyond the, the myopic cultural worldview, no longer monochromatic, but rather churches that truly look like the kingdom of heaven, truly look like uh, the, the Church of Jesus, which means black, white, yellow, brown, worshiping together. That is the number one trend right now happening in this nation, the emergence of multi-ethnic, multi-generational, Christ-centered, Bible-based churches. That puts a smile on my face, because it's the answer to the racial angst in the nation. Mm-hmm. It's the fulfillment of Dr. King's dream. It's the reconciliation of Billy Graham's message with Dr. King's march. It's both righteousness and justice. It's both sanctification and service. So that's my moment of Zen, for a lack of a better phrase. It's, it puts a smile on my face just thinking about it, because greater things are on the way indeed. We are the conduit of a generation that wants to see the kingdom come together. That's beautiful. Now, I imagine there are probably pastors listening who um, are excited about those same things. And there might be pastors who really in their heart that resonates and they would love to see their their ministry, their church move to a multi-ethnic church, but they just don't really know where to start. You know, they weren't raised in a multi-ethnic church. They haven't experienced that. Uh, what would you say to that pastor who has the desire to see that? What are some you know initial steps that they can begin to take to see that come to pass? When we planted our church, it was intentional from day one. There has to be intentionality. It has to come from the top. It can't be superimposed. It really has to be from the top down, which means intentionally our board of trustees and elders, they reflected the diversity that we desire to reach. Our praise and worship, our leadership, our ushers, our greeters, our first impressions, our growth tracks, our connect groups. They all reflect the group or the constituency we want to attract. You, you, we want to, you will attract what you reflect. So it's intentional. Our church currently is 40% white, Anglo, 40% African-American, 20% Latino and Asian. On any given Sunday, you, it would be difficult. You would be hard-pressed to identify which is the dominant group. And it's a beautiful thing indeed. And pastors have to be intentional, number one. Number two, they have to make sure it permeates every single dynamic and aspect of the ministry in church, from its organizational wineskin, from its management component, to its ministry perspective and outreach. So in everything, in every marketing, in every brochure, on every graphic, on every website, on every Instagram photo reflective of the church, make sure you have the different faces of the various communities you intentionally want to reach out and and reach and uh, engage accordingly. So it has to be intentional, it has to be deliberate, and it has to be celebrated. Again, the answer to the strife and discord in America right now, a divided church can never heal a broken nation. A united church has the power to bring about the greatest amount of light. I want the pastors and leaders listening to this to understand that the, the white color The brightest light, do your Google due diligence, please. The brightest light is actually the convergence of the colors of the spectrum. Can you believe that? When all the colors come together, it actually forms the brightest light. So if we really want to push back darkness, it behooves us to come together, to come together as one church 
in the name of Jesus, all the colors coming together. I'm really tired of the whole idea of a white church or a brown church or a black church. There's just one church, the Church of Jesus Christ. And the moment that church emerges in every respective community, reflective of all the ethnicities in that community, we will change the world. That's beautiful. I love that, brother. What would you say, I understand if you're planting a church, you're being intentional from day one, but um, I, I travel the country, I speak with a lot of pastors that, you know, they're pastoring a small church, the church has been around for a long time, it's, you know, primarily maybe an Anglo church, a white church for the most part, but the neighborhood around the church has changed dramatically, yet the church itself hasn't. What practical steps would you suggest a pastor in that type of a situation? Because we see that a lot here in the U.S. Um, what practical steps would you suggest that they begin to take um, to help their people, you know, transition through that to a multi-ethnic church? With great due deference to all my fellow pastors who are amazing, of course, you have two options. One is to pack up, as many pastors have done, and move to the suburbs. Or second, how about not packing up and really demonstrating the, the great commission and the call of Christ upon his church and saying, we're not going to pack up and move to the suburbs. We're actually going to transform ourselves. We're going to permit the Holy Spirit to bring about change. You're going to be intentional, and, and you're going to reach out to the community around you in a way that's done with truth and love, not in a patronizing way, but in a way that is equitable in spirit, in form, and in function. What does that mean? It means you reach out. You address the needs of the community around you with truth and love while simultaneously engaging those that are in the community by providing services and ministries and addressing it in such a way where families will begin to come into the church. Again, you can only attract what you reflect. So make sure you have on your stage and in everything you do, representatives from that respective community around the church. But then you go out there and you address the needs. The fishes and the bread principle. Uh, for example, I'll give you an example. In Sacramento, you, you have various communities that say Latino communities. And I'm asked by my fellow pastors, what can I do, Sam, to reach out to the Latinos in, in our neighborhood? Well, easy. Why don't you start English acquisition courses in your church? Uh, bilingual education, and why doesn't the church become the primary conduit by which these immigrant individuals or the Latino community really truly assimilate and, and embrace and engages the English vernacular in a, in a viable way? What if the church becomes the tool by which these individuals really assimilate and integrate into collective American society? So the church has become a bridge of engagement, of providing resources, of equipping families and communities from various ethnicities. It becomes a very healthy relationship and very transformative. Sam, I love that idea of, of being intentional about being a bridge, right, within the community. You, you see, the, see the needs, see the struggles, see the challenges, and then say, well, God has placed our church here in this community, so why don't we step into those challenges and help, um, help be a bridge and help um, you know, bring something positive to our community. Sometimes uh, when pastors kind of begin to to make these shifts within their churches, they get a lot of pushback from their current, you know, church attendees or church members. How do you recommend pastors kind of begin to navigate through some of that pushback? There has to be a pushback on the pushback. So there's, there's viable pushback, and then there's pushback that could be myopic or culturally contextualized and not biblically sustainable. If the pushback is lacking, in, it, it suffers, be it from cognitive dissonance or, or theological viable deficiency, 
then you have every every biblical compelling imperative to push back on the pushback, which means, ladies and gentlemen, if you want us to maintain a monochromatic church in the midst of a neighborhood that has diversified over the years, then you have options, respectfully. Uh, you can find another church that best addresses your worldview, or you can stay here and live out the gospel, mm. and really live out the gospel of Jesus. So be truthful with love, of course. You don't have to be confrontational. You do it with love, right. um, but you do it because we can't sacrifice truth, and we can't sacrifice the Great Commission and the call of Christ of Matthew 25 to quench the thirst and feed the hungry and welcome the stranger. We can't sacrifice any of the biblical mandates or imperatives on, on, the, on the idea that I, I'm going to be defined by the members that like me. We, we are constantly obsessed to a great degree with this dynamic of constant validation and affirmation. We're not defined by the likes of many. We're defined by the love of one. Mm. And, and we have to be driven. What is Jesus telling me to do in my community? What is my mandate? What's my assignment in this city? What is it? And it has to go way beyond satisfying a, a culturally contextualized or myopic or, or tunnel vision way of thinking. And so, again, we're out there to reach the laws and change the world and be light. Uh, and that's what that's that's what should compel us at the end of the day. Amen, Sam. As as you were saying that, I was thinking, thinking about the Apostle Paul. And I know you've studied his life a lot. In fact, you've you've got a new book out entitled "Shake Free," and and you really are tracing the Apostle Paul's journey um, as he's making his way to Rome. And uh, he had all kinds of things come against, you know, shipwrecks, storms, all those things, right? <laughs> and um, had all this coming against him. And yet, what you were saying, you know, he was not so interested as we look at his life in making sure that everyone around him liked him. He was fully committed to honoring God in all that he said and all that he did. Um, Can you talk to us a little bit about, as you study the life of Paul, how is it that um, we as as ministry leaders, when we face these storms, how can we um, kind of stand up with that same kind of courage and, and move through those storms with Christ by our side? Acts 27, 28, storms, shipwrecks, and then the inevitable snake. Of course, it searched in our corresponding lifetime as a metaphor, but we've all been through it. And it's, and it's to a great degree of ministry, it's almost inevitable. Matter of fact, it, it, in the Hebrew exegete of Isaiah, it's not if you go through waters or fires, it's when mm. you go through fires and difficult waters, I will be with you, not if. But the Hebrew word that there is when. So there is a sense of inevitability regarding our trajectory. So when we hear the false gospel preach that Christians don't go through anything, and if they do, they're in sin, that's sort of that. But I, 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 it's just complete, you know, it's, it's rubbish. It really is. Right. We all go through storms. On occasion, we go through shipwrecks. And on occasion, there are things that will emerge with the purpose of either poisoning or strangling our destiny or a God-given purpose. What did Paul do? Paul shook it off. Acts 23, 11 says that God told Paul, I'm taking you to Rome to get this gospel message preached in the most powerful, most important city in the world at that time. And he went through a storm and a shipwreck and a, a snake attack, but he kept on going because there was a word, a promise, a destiny, an assignment for the Apostle Paul. We all go through storms. We all go through shipwrecks. But the question is, what drives us? What are you driven by? In Acts 27, in the Greek exegete, it says that the, those in the boat with Paul lowered their anchor in order to be driven by the storm. 
we're either storm-driven or we're destiny-driven. We're driven by the past or the future, by fear or by faith. We're either driven by the past or by God's purpose for our future. What, are, what drives us? Is it the grace of Christ, the truth of Christ? Or what drives us? We are all driven people. The question is, will we permit the Spirit of God, the truth of God, the centrality of Christ to drive us? That's why I wrote the book, Shake Free. I've been through it. I've been through my storm. I can't deny it. I've been through a shipwreck. I thought there was a ministry opportunity back in my 20s that would have taken me to my proverbial Rome, and I lost my ship. But even without my ship, I still made it. That's literally the words that God gave the Apostle Paul in Acts 27. Even without that ship, you will still make it. So regardless of what you've been through in life, the Word of God, the faith, the purpose of God in you, Philippians 1, 6, He will finish the work He has started in you. First Thessalonians 5.24, He who called you is faithful to do what He promised. Yeah, Sam, that, that's, that's awesome. Now, in speaking to pastors that find themselves today, as they're listening to our conversation, they find themselves in the middle of, of a storm. Um, sometimes when they're in the middle of the storm, it's hard for us to... to you know, to see any any light. You know, it's hard for us to see that. You know, there there's somewhere um, a, a safe harbor at some point, perhaps. Um, right. What 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 do we do when we're in the midst of the storms? It feels like everything's coming at us. Maybe we've been betrayed by people we've trusted. Um, it seems like everything we're trying isn't really, you know, you no know, moving moving the ministry forward. What do we do in those moments? In the midst of it all. Ready for this? Yeah. It, it sounds naivete to a degree, simplistic, but it is the power of the, of, the, of the gospel of Jesus. Trust God. Trust God when life makes no sense. That's faith. Mm. Faith is trusting God when life makes zero sense. It is complete surrenderance. It is pursuing righteousness. In the midst of the storm, it is this radical, audacious idea of saying, God, it's not me, it's you. It's way beyond me. Lead me, guide me, strengthen me. It's all in your hands. Believe that he will guide you and drive you. Believe, by the way, that there may be a temporary layover at Malta. We have temporary layovers in life. It's that's that place in between. But even in Malta, the favor and the grace and the truth of God accompanies us every single day of our lives. So it's trusting God. It's believing God. And it's actually waking up every single morning, putting on the armor of God, and moving forward. And I know it sounds naive, it sounds simplistic, but really it is the gospel. It's to move forward, even in the midst of, we're not defined by what surrounds us. We're defined by God's Spirit inside of us. And we've made it this far, not because we perfectly held on to God. We've made it this far because God perfectly held on to us. Amen. Amen. That's a good word, brother. Sam, I know in, in the book that you, you kind of touch on this idea that it's oftentimes through these struggles that we really um, become strengthened for, for what we might face next. Can you talk to us a little bit about a time in your ministry when, looking back, you can see how God was uh, allowing a struggle to strengthen you for something you didn't even know that you'd be facing at some time? Indeed, some, some years back. I received, because of my access to governmental authorities at the highest corridors of power by the grace of God and through divine appointment indeed, I've been able to have access to three presidents of the United States of America in some sort of advisory capacity or another. President Bush, President Obama, and President Trump now. 
And on one occasion, years back, uh, years back, I received significant pushback. I posted something on a social media platform that was just emerging. And I posted, Jesus is the only way. I didn't do it in a confrontational manner. I didn't do it for the purpose of enticing the indignation of other religious narratives or those that do not believe. Nevertheless, the pushback was so measurable and significant that it, it became harassment. It became bullying. Matter of fact, on, on one side, it was bullying. On the other side, there was this offer that was made that if I stopped saying that Christ is the only way, that greater doors would open for me to have greater access to corridors of power on different spectrums in different spheres of society. So I was being enticed or coerced. And what I did is I doubled down. Mm-hmm. Not in a confrontational way, but in a loving, graceful way, but nevertheless, I doubled down. And I began to preach about the centrality of Christ. In John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life, more than ever before. Well, that moment right there and ended up in, in God giving me an opportunity to pray at a presidential inauguration and to have a privilege that very few others have received, and I understand it's by the grace of God alone, 1 Corinthians 15.10. But I was able to lift up the name of Jesus over, in front of over 1.1 billion people around the world because years back I received significant pushback when I did bring up the name of Jesus in a public arena. So I've, I've been through my journey. I've been through my struggle. And there are other stories, of course. Uh, but with that being said, it's learning to pursue righteousness. It's learning to live a holy, healed, healthy, happy, humble life. It's learning to make those that follow you greater than yourself. It's learning that while we're waiting for Jesus to come down, Jesus is waiting for his church to stand up. Mm, that's so good. Sam, what I love about that story, and thank you for sharing, is that, you know, it, 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 and not that all of us, obviously, are going to be invited to, to pray to inauguration. I know that's not the point of your story, um, but, no, but, but the fact that you didn't compromise when there was pushback because so often it's, you know, we see in the society in which we live that sometimes we, um, and again, not that you you weren't confrontational, obviously, but we, we, we see this tendency to kind of tone things down, you know, when there's a little bit of pushback to kind of keep things smooth sailing. But just like you said, you kind of doubled down and you knew going back to the very beginning of our conversation, you knew your identity in Christ. And so you, you know, really made it clear. You clarified rather than, than kind of toning it down. You, you clarified it even more in a, in a loving way, I'm sure. And, and in doing that, you've had the opportunity to have even more influence and, and to share the hope of Christ in, in, in greater ways. And I think that's encouraging to pastors who are listening because oftentimes we feel ourselves kind of stuck in that place where uh, we do have this pushback and we're trying to decide. And it's not that we're ashamed of the gospel, but we're trying to oftentimes, I think we have this internal conversation where we're trying to um, be somewhat strategic maybe, or, you know, or some way like, like how do we navigate this? But the fact that you're saying, man, just know your identity in Christ and embrace that identity, and then, like you said, trust God in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the pushback, and continue um, embracing the identity of Christ, and, and God's got you in this, right? Absolutely. Know who God is. Know who you are in Christ. Your identity is in Him. In Him we live, in Him we move, in Him we have our being. Acts seventeen twenty eight. Galatians two twenty. Crucified with Christ, and yet you live. Nevertheless, you live. So know who you are in Christ. And absolutely nothing would be, nothing will be able to deter the fulfillment of God's purpose in your life. But you have to believe that, regardless of the shipwrecks and the storms and the snakes that come out of the fire, 
you have to believe that, that you're on your way to your proverbial Rome. Amen, brother. That's so good. So encouraging. I want to thank you so much for being with us um, on the Church Leaders Podcast. And I want to encourage people, if, if they want to get your new book, Shake Free, um, is there a specific place that they can go, or is it going to be available most anywhere? Almost anywhere, but absolutely. Amazon.com, of course, and Barnes and & Nobles, and Books a Million, all available immediately. And I, I assure you, it will bless your life indeed. Yeah, it's, it's a great book. I certainly appreciate it. So encourage you guys to check out um, Pastor Sam Rodriguez's newest book, Shake Free. And again, brother, thank you so much for being with us and for all you're doing for the kingdom. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us on this week's episode. Every week as we are putting the episodes together, we're thinking of you, our pastors and ministry leaders, and striving to provide insightful and inspiring interviews as you seek to grow as a kingdom leader. So we hope you're finding value from the Church Leaders Podcast. And if so, we'd certainly appreciate you taking a few moments to head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Your positive reviews and ratings help other church leaders more easily find our podcasts so they too can benefit from these interviews. Again, we thank you in advance. And if you have any comments, any questions, suggestions, or ideas for guests, I would love to hear from you. You can send me an email to podcast at churchleaders.com or you can connect with me on Twitter. Finally, you can find this podcast as well as other great faith-based podcasts on the Faith Play app. It's available for both Apple and Android, and so we encourage you to check that out as well. So until next time, this is Jason Day encouraging you to love well and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.